Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Good morning, Joe. And Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi, Joe. Hello. We're going to chat broad themes today, uh, teams including Everton-Liverpool, Man City-Arsenal, Spurs-West Ham. That's where the teams end. Uh, But it's going to be really good. And uh, you know why, because we're good (laughs) and the football's good. So, podcast good. Anyway, if you like other things that are good, you should visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO to enjoy all of the good work that The Athletic does. Of course, that is editorial pieces with journalists uh, dedicated to individual clubs in the Premier League. Of course, there are some some Champions League clubs in there too. Uh, We have 10 other sports, lots of journalists in America. I think there's something like 400 journalists overall, maybe just slightly fewer than that. But uh, there's a lot of people uh, writing wonderful, wonderful uh, stories and particularly a lot of long reads uh, for you to become really very well acquainted with the sport that you love. I don't think that's a uh, what do they call it? A verified marketing line, but uh, it's quite good, isn't it? Well acquainted, huh? Do we like that? We do. Maybe I should send a, an internal fax to the uh, marketing department. Hey, well acquainted. Yeah. I have nothing else to say. Uh, does anyone want to say anything else before we get started? No. All right. A lot of enthusiasm this morning. I will leave you in the cold hands and the cold embrace of myself. begin, dear friends, with uh, Manchester City and Arsenal. Uh, now, of course, uh, Manchester City and Arsenal played each other over the last weekend. Alex, I just want to put this to you. We talked about it a bit at the time, but something that frustrated me uh, enormously whilst watching that game was the way uh, in which, and I normally love Jamie Carragher, and, you know, this I don't really, not trying to level a, a criticism. This isn't a dig. I'm not trying to start a beef. Uh, but... He just kept saying that the players were freewheeling. I mean, players from both teams, uh, Manchester City and Arsenal, of course, there was there were some jokes towards the beginning of the game. Um, I'm worried it was Gary Neville and not Jamie Carragher. I can't remember which one. They're the same. <laughs> they, they made these jokes about, well, whoa, 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 where's the right back starting? Is they in the middle? And is there a, a winger that's cutting inside as if these things have never happened before ever? Uh, and this is the first time teams have, you know, had unusual formations or players that fulfil more than one role or do more than one thing. It's never happened before, ever, never. Uh, and they kept sort of making jokes about it. No, no one could predict it. We didn't know what was going to... You know, the players are freewheeling. They're not. They're not freewheeling. They've been told what to do. They've been told what to do by coaches that tell them exactly what to do and are renowned for telling them exactly what to do. Can you just explain that a little better than I have done, please? Because it's very annoying. I think you've explained it quite cogently. Uh, <laughs> yes, I mean, it's so that that obviously that Manchester City formation is a sort of kind of a three five two, possibly. If you actually look at the um, the average position in the passing map that, you know, Kyle Walker, for example, starting as a right sided centre back is pretty much in in a kind of right back slot Cancelo is kind of playing further up the pitch almost as a as a wide right-sided player so it's not you know the the starting formation for a start is not necessarily how things manifest particularly when a team is in possession it's much 
more of an indicator of how teams are uh, in a kind of defensive position, usually mostly in a sort of mid or low block. So that's the first thing to say that, you know, don't look at the formation and think this is what the team is going to look like on the pitch all of the time. The second thing to say, exactly like you said, is is that, you know, these teams don't freewheel generally um, <laughs> because that's just not how it works. And you're you're dealing here with um, with Guardiola and Arteta, with two coaches uh, who espouse the the philosophy of positional play, which is highly orchestrated. Um, we've talked about positional play a number of times. We talked about it on the the state of the club um, tactics segment, for example. You know there are a, a set number of rules about where players should be that there shouldn't be more than you know, three players on the same vertical line, two on the same horizontal line, or is it the other way around? I can never remember. Um, that, you know, if, if a player is in a particular zone and leaves that zone, then another player has a move into that zone. That, that You know, everybody moves around the pitch in, a, in an orchestrated fashion with these repetitious movements that are, are learned and practiced, and that's why tight control and spacing is so important. <laughs> Freewheeling. And and it's it's kind of basically the opposite of freewheeling. I mean, you couldn't now, be further from freewheeling. That's that's what makes it so irritating. I it's not just like not. it's in the middle. It's the no. total opposite of freewheeling. Yeah, I mean, I I assume we're all we're all taking freewheeling to mean the same kind of thing here, which is a sort of improvisation of, of position and so on. The wheel is free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, but that that's that is simply not not what these coaches do. And and I guess. The point to make here maybe is a slightly wider, you know, I, I think Gary Neville and, and Jamie Carragher have done an awful lot for the comprehension of tactics uh, and the explanation of tactics with Monday Night Football, uh, and they should be lauded for that. But by and large, there is still a, a deficit with uh, commentators, and I appreciate that it's difficult if you're you know, doing co-commentary and you're there to provide that kind of additional tactical input while while a game's going on. It can be very hard to do that, I'm sure. But tactics is is it's complicated, it's pushed on a lot. You know, there are concepts now which exist that are understood by some of an audience, and I think there's a deficit in how well some commentators explain that stuff. Um and there can be a kind of uh, a resetting to a position of lots of guys running around doing stuff that's a bit wild, um, and that yeah. that simply doesn't reflect the reality. Do you know what? As well, I, I think um, we Alex Alex and I went to a, a, an Opta event once um, in in West London somewhere. At, it was basically just a series of talks um, and a bit of networking. But w- one of the the special guests that was there at that event was Danny Murphy, <laughs> and I remember thinking beforehand. <laughs> When, it's just the idea of the two of you networking. Well, no, when I say like Alex and I were stood outside smoking while everyone else was, was having a nice time and just, talking to each other. That just sounds like it would have been horrendous no, for yeah, our company. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It's Maybe if we, go on we our own. got asked. <laughs> yeah. Have you got any cigarettes? Yeah, yeah, here you go. That's pretty much it. Uh, but uh, anyway, the, the, the point I was making was... Um, what was I saying? Oh, yes, Danny Murphy was on the bill. And I, I remember thinking, you know, beforehand, uh, like the sort of cruel and uh, belligerent man that I am, Danny Murphy, an Opta event, what the fuck is happening? And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Danny Murphy 
Danny Murphy's an idiot. Danny Murphy doesn't understand what, you know, stats are. Of course Danny Murphy understands. So we get we get there, watch the talk, and, and there I am, um, foolish old me, being shown right up by Danny Murphy, who clearly, very, very clearly grasps, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the of the modern metrics that are being used today um, and has, the, has a, a sharp tactical understanding for the game. Um, and... I, I can't remember. I, don't, I won't quote him because I can't remember exactly what he said. But it was something along the lines of, uh, "I have to change the way that I watch football when I appear on Match of the Day because I'm appealing to a broad audience and not to Joe and Alex from Tifo." He didn't say that last bit, but um, <laughs> I just remember thinking, like, I, I, I do. It makes me wonder, like, how, how much. Uh, direction there is in not specifically the commentary but in the punditry around football as well how much they are supposed to I mean essentially I don't maybe I shouldn't be using this term but dumb down uh, their their view of football for a broad audience does that make me sound smug enough for you Seb? Yeah I think so but I I, I, I think it's a fair way of describing it. Well, what do you? I mean, what do you think when you watch uh, football and, and hear the commentators and hear the punishment? Because you, 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 you've met probably a few of these people as well, uh, and you will know presumably that they've got more in the locker than they're showing you on their Saturday. Yeah, well, I, I think the first, the key distinction to draw is between uh, the BBC and Sky Sports and their different objectives, uh, because the BBC is supposed to cater to as broad an audience as possible, whereas Sky Sports is, of course, a dedicated sports channel. Um, and the tone of the coverage reflects that. So I, I don't think it's unfair, but I, I, I think also uh, the BBC's coverage tends generally to be bent through the lens of Match of the Day, which is a highlights programme. The utility is that, or the, 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 the function of Match of the Day is to literally provide highlights, um, a catch-up. It's the traditional role of the Saturday Highlight Show, whereas obviously if you want your deeper dives, you're going to go to... Um, you're going to go to Sky Sports, you're going to go to the internet, or you're going to go to Tifo on YouTube. Um, but I, I think it's very easy for people to make this mistake because there is so much football on TV um, and the personalities associated with it often appear in you know several different positions. And I've got a great deal of sympathy for Danny Murphy, actually, because you are expected to alter your, I suppose, character depending on where you're appearing so that's that's actually i mean it's a it's a bit of a skill not necessarily totally. one i admire but it's well this is what i'm saying this is why i say i came away from that event with a with a huge amount of respect for him uh because i you know i just uh, had kind of foolishly or naively not realized um that there was more to the job than just talking about football there is an element to where so sky sports is a product uh, an entertainment product and and part of the entertainment in inverted commas is the personality of some of the pundits because people will say or do things that will attract coverage um Roy Keane will roll his eyes and it will become a gif and you know I think that there's always a, a balance between you know when when Carragher and Neville are on Monday Night Football their job is to provide insight and I, and I think they do that yeah but around the match day where stuff is kind of hyped and there's narratives to explore there is there is a transition there and so if the narrative of Guardiola against Arteta is is sort of master against pupil and this incredibly complicated ornate style of football and you know it, it's I assume it's relatively easy to fall into the trap of of 
kind of engaging in hyperbole to describe that and then turning it into, well, they're just going to be all over the place and the formation will be insane and they'll do this, that and the other. And, and, and that's, that's partly because that's the kind of the hype and the narrative that surrounds that fixture. But I suspect that if that fixture was then analysed, you would have had those same pundits making considerably more astute points about it in the course yeah. of the game. You're probably right. You probably and don't look. Don't get me wrong. I, I really like. I really like both of them. I think that. I think they do a very good job. I just thought. I, I would like to point out actually. I think there's. Um. You're right. Maybe it's where where it's being pitched. I don't mind the the Roy Keane Graham Souness stuff. The kind of silly take on football stuff because I sort of think. Well, yeah. When I mean, what, what's the point? Otherwise, it's that's what football's there for, as far as I understand it, for people to have you know meaningless conversations and you know have ri- ridiculous takes that are completely unnecessary and about something that just doesn't matter at all that's that's fine that's the point why, of football why why is that the point of football because why what else would be the point of football to understand it well yeah but to understand what or i mean there's no point is there what's the point of understanding it's, it's irrelevant it doesn't matter <laughs> it doesn't help anything so like what's the point in understanding it I, I think, personally, I think everything we do is wrong. I think we should just be doing hot takes on, uh, you know, oh, he, he, he's rubbish at the game. The point is, it's, it's for it's for social cohesion, isn't it? It's for community. And and what what does the community love more than a than a good good chat about football? Often those chats don't involve learning anything about it. I mean, I, I think personally, that's exactly what football is for. Uh, what I don't like is when. Football is not being discussed in that realm. It's been discussed in a kind of more educational realm, like the commentators, whose job is not to, you know, do gossip or whatever, but to actually commentate on the game, and then is inaccurate. That's just that's just irritating. But I don't mind all of the kind of stuff around it. Do you understand what I'm saying, Seb? I do. I also, I don't think... Um, this weekend was a really good example of this. I know we're going to talk about Liverpool Everton a little bit later, but I thought... I don't much care for the substance of what Graham Souness says, but oh, the sure. character he plays on TV is a um, is it's very similar to the average fan watching at home. So if you look at the conversation, if you look at his punditry immediately after uh, immediately after the game, where he's talking about Jordan Pickford and he's kind of he's given a overly emotional, ludicrous response to what was just you know a really unfortunate accident, um, and then you had Carragher on the other end of what seemed to be a kind of badly connected zoom with a little bit of a delay saying, Oh, behave Graham. It's one of the, it's one of the, it's a very authentic segment because he's, on he's, the also, one he's hand, got his finger on the pulse of the viewers, man. Like he chimes with what, what, as you say, many people already think. If you, if you, if you look at kind of the, the social media output associated with that game in the days since with this coming out on, um, on uh, Thursday. So a couple of days removed, but um, last 48 hours, there have been some ridiculous things said about Jordan Pickford to the point where his family is um, supposedly receiving death threats and that kind of thing. It's terrible. Um, and I think what was quite interesting about Souness is, is he captured the kind of the, the hypocrisy of the modern fan in a way because there's Graham Souness, one of the nastiest players ever to play the game. And <laughs> I mean, younger people that aren't aware of this, Google him. Go- yeah. Google Graham Souness and have a look at some of the tackles um, that, uh, littered his career i think tackles overstates it to be yeah fair. <laughs> well even even within the context of the rules back then and uh the slightly different nature in which the game was played and the way that modern referees protect players to have someone get that bent out of shape about um about the idea of kind of putting another player in danger 
it's just ludicrous. But then again, this is what we're all guilty of. We we change our opinions depending on the shirt of the player that's um that's either been hurt or you know is uh, offside or has scored a goal or hasn't scored a goal. We're ruled by tribalism, and I think Sunes is the same. I think um, he's part of that sort of standing army of ex Liverpool players that kind of rise and march whenever there's a you know whenever there's an issue. Um, and I think it is important <laughs> to have that on TV. It's not what I like. Um, it's not really for me, yeah. but it is for the, for the majority. And it's, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a valuable dynamic, even if I personally don't appreciate it. I don't appreciate it either. But then, you know. like me, and then you don't care about it. That's kind of, that's, that's kind of what Seb's saying. That, that kind of apathy spills out into other departments of your life, Alex. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's, that's possibly fair. But no, I mean, it's, I, I, the thing that most angers, or not even angers me, I just sort of roll my eyes at it, is this ridiculously partisan quality. And we've touched on it before, but, you know, even to the extent where we can post a video asking if Team A is one of the best teams ever. And the responses are littered with people going, yeah, but what about this other team? And it's like, we're not... That's the point, though. That's what football is, isn't it? That's kind of the point I'm trying to make. But I don't understand that. But it's a space to be irrational. Like, it's a... Yeah. uh, It annoys me, too. But it happens But it's because... fine there. The point, like, yeah. That's the point, like, so I hope the point you're about to make is that is is the one I'm trying to lean towards is that there's no, like, obviously, you know, obviously I do not mean when things uh, take a turn or when death threats are being sent to someone's family or when violence spills over. But for the most part, with football fans, let's just call it in the UK for now, it is an opportunity to be irrational when, when particularly as an adult, when you have responsibilities in your life, when every other moment of the day you have to be rational, when you know you spend a lot of money to participate in football and can only, you know, obviously only do it at the weekends, uh, and you haven't got that much going on. And uh, I mean, it, it's it's your opportunity to, I mean, let your hair down basically and just um, let yourself go to the irrationality. I find it too when I watch when I watch teams that I'm fonder of. I find often I get sort of drawn in to the if there is a if there's a tackle on a player that I like I might swear at the player who did the tackle even if I know it's a it's a mistake doesn't matter I'm just I'm letting myself get caught up in it that's the point of football without that I I literally cannot understand what it would be for I mean I, I think it would be completely pointless without those irrationalities that you're describing Alex possibly but I I I, I still I, I get I get what you're saying, and I suppose this is just a difference with me personally. But I I don't feel the need to have an irrationality. That's because There's... you buried your anger deep deep down, <laughs> and the fo- the football isn't enough to to get it out. You know, until now. Maybe if you were watching your parents play football in the garden, that might that might trigger something. I don't. I just I don't can know imagine, what that would be. Yeah, my mum Graham soonessing my dad. Sure, <laughs> that would be quite funny. <laughs> Anyway, let's talk about a different thing after the break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Uh, let's talk about. I want to talk about Spurs West Ham um, because we sort of did Spurs the other day. But we didn't really. We just did how Man United collapsed in front of Spurs, and clearly uh, Spurs are pretty good, aren't they? Or are they? I mean, I don't know anymore. I'm so confused about it because they did the goals and then they 
conceded the goals. Um, we did have our opportunity to see Gareth Bale, of course. Uh, there was a little more uh, of Kane in the the, the, the playmaking role, um, which I know Alex is keen to discuss. Uh, and of course, um, the that Manuel Lanzini goal was bloody delightful, wasn't it, Seb? Sure was. Uh, although, so a little bit of a uh, behind the curtain um, moment. I um, I got on a plane at three nil Tottenham, and <laughs> the plane landed uh, about three minutes after full time. It's a good band name that is. I got on a plane at three nil Tottenham. I, I, I turned my phone on to, to aeroplane mode when I when I got on. It was three nil. I remember thinking all the way through the flight. It wasn't a long one, but it was. Um, I remember thinking being weirdly anxious because uh, with a three nil lead, um, and it's because uh, Tottenham haven't kept a clean sheet all season. And not even in the Europa League qualifiers when they um, literally play teams that I've never heard of uh, with players I've never heard of uh, who really weren't very good. And still, somehow, even though they progressed and scored goals at the other end of the pitch and did enough to, to, to get through, these games were still littered with awful defensive moments. And um, I feel like this has been this has been lost in uh, in the reaction because it was everything we know about Spurs. Are they better going forward? Are they a bit more interesting? Um, yes, they are. And Alex has just written a, a, an excellent script on, which is going to explain part of that, um, which will be coming out in the next few days. But at the same time, has this kind of defensive collapse, these defensive issues, have they been um, part of Jose Mourinho's reign for the last almost a year, for 11 months? Absolutely. It's actually very similar um, with some neat, neat symmetry, very similar to the first game he took charge of, which was against West Ham at London Stadium. Spurs into a three-goal lead, and they won the game 3-2, but had the game gone on for an extra five minutes, that would also yeah. have finished There's been a lot of 3-2s with Spurs, hasn't there? Yeah, they just can't defend. I mean, and also that defence for a while... So what, what's happened, obviously, since the breakup of Pochettino's original defence, which, of course, was Aldevaro, Vertonghen, Danny Rose, and Carl Walker, what they've done is, as different members of that group have either left the club or fallen out of favour or got older... They've tried to uh, replace them individually. What the group actually needs is, in my opinion, it needs to be rethought of collectively. So mm. you need to, you need to, instead of just trying to plug the gap, the results in Toby Aldevaro's lack of pace, you need to look at a different structure. Instead of buying a Serge Aurier to replace Carl Walker because they're vaguely similar in the sense of, um, you know, how they act beyond the halfway line. You need to look at the defence's balance. And there are all sorts of... I mean, I don't want to pick on Davison Sanchez, but uh, it's as if the reaction to his performance is as if this is a, a new thing. Davison Sanchez has been pretty poor for about 18 months, two years. Um, <laughs> people forget this because he he, paid a lot, he, was, he was bought for a lot of money and he came from Ajax um, and he still has a very good reputation. Some of his individual moments, I suppose, over the last couple of seasons, uh, I mean, it's just been abysmal at times. Um, he's had good games. I'm not saying he's a useless player, but these are not new themes. That's my point. And um, there has been no general correction to the way Tottenham defends or the little irritations like Hugo Lloris's inability to come off his line or um, his weird susceptibility to long shots. Lovely goal by Manuel Lanzini. Fabulous hit. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, Lloris should be saving that. He goes, yeah, I mean, if, if we had David Priest on this pod, top, didn't he? Yeah, if we had David Priest on this pod, he'd be saying, right, you're going with your wrong hand. Um, you are covering the space between uh, the um, you know between him and his top corner. You know, it looked wrong. Um, and if you go back, 
Lloris is a goalkeeper who makes a lot of really good saves, but concedes a lot of goals where which aren't necessarily glaring mistakes, but which you think, eh, that looks a little bit soft. Um, and I think soft is the way you describe all different all the different parts of that defense. It's um, you know bad defending set pieces. It's vulnerable between the fullbacks and centre halves in that little channel. It gets turned around far too easily. Players who sit and screen in front of it give the ball away in stupid positions and never seem to learn the mistakes. And I've learned from those mistakes. And it's kind of one of the reasons why it's, it's quite difficult to blame Mourinho for it because these things are, are, are um, you know, have roots in the Pochettino era too. They've been going on for that long. Well, this is what I was going to ask though. I mean, like Mourinho, Jose Mourinho is a renowned defensive coach. He's, he's, he's a coach who's renowned for for coming in and sorting out teams with defensive frailties. Uh, are you saying simply that the, the issue is with individual errors and there's nothing you can do about it? No, no, I, I'm not recusing him entirely. I, I think there is a there's definitely a case for saying this this defence needs to be rebuilt from the ground up. Um, what I the reason I'm, I'm pausing on on attacking Mourinho is so uh, Matt Doherty is in, uh, Sergio Reguilon has come in. Uh, Joe Roden has been signed from Swansea City. There are new components to here. Yeah. So I'm willing to say, let's give it a little bit of time to see what his vision for this defence is. You're basically a convert, aren't you? I'm, <laughs> you spent, I'm you've been edging towards hard. it for the last eight weeks or so. Uh, and now you're just like, I feel like you're just basically a secret Mourinho fan. I have always been. I have always been that. I, I, I'm trying very, very hard to be open-minded with Jose Mourinho because... Um, you're making it sound very easy. Yeah. <sighs> It's it's tricky. I, I just I just think um, I think there are times when if you're a Tottenham fan, if you're honest, you would recognise themes from that West Ham game in Tottenham's play for the last two or three years. Um, and let I me think- let me can I ask you a specific question then, right? Because you know, talking about Graham Souness before, talking about pulse of the nation, right? I want to see. I want to test you as a kind of pulse of Spurs fans across the Ooh, nation. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, we start when we started this season. Uh, which really was only what d- 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 month, two months ago. I have no idea. Five where weeks, we are. maybe something like that. Five weeks ago was that really yeah. it? Uh, maybe we're talking about the end of last season. Then um, at some point this this season uh, this year, you vehemently hated Jose Mourinho, right? We had several conversations about it. You thought he was a terrible, terrible choice. I think it was actually it might have been the discussion after that Everton game. Uh, and uh, you, you, you know, it's not that you didn't rate him previously as a manager, but you did not rate him now as a manager for this Spurs team in this situation. And over the last five, six weeks, I, I know you're probably just going to say it's the results, but you, you, you've, you've definitely pivoted on that position. And I, I wonder if you are similar to many Spurs fans. Can you just walk, walk us through what's happened to you? Resignation, I think, because there are a couple of realities with Jose Mourinho. I, I still don't think he's the right choice. Uh, I still would have placed five or six managers in Europe above him for this position. Who? Um, well, I think there should have been a uh, like a you know a, a more of an attempt to look at sort of a, a Marco Rosa. Um, right. Nagelsmann yeah. was probably off the table. Uh, Hasenhutl is one I would have looked at. Um, I know that's going to antagonise Alex, but I you know there's a lot about Southampton that I really like. Nina Santa Wolves. Yeah. Um, before he signed his new contract, uh, I liked a lot of his, what, what he did. I mean, I, I know this won't be received particularly well, but and would have been impractical because Neil Warnock. <laughs> I was going to say Eddie Howe actually, but that Eddie seems Howe, a bit yeah. silly given what happened to Bournemouth. But I, I still think there's a, a a very decent future manager in Eddie Howe. Um, I think what's happened is is that um, I've been pleasantly surprised by the club's ambition in the transfer market. 
um, which I don't think many people saw coming because I think when, when Jose Mourinho walks through the front door at your club, you think he's only going to succeed if he's supported with uh, big outlays, big signings. Um, and I don't think any Tottenham supporter would have thought we're going to see uh, a player of Reglon's quality. Uh, I don't think anybody yeah. really imagined that Gareth Bale was going to come back. Um, Do you think Daniel Levy just got bored of doing the same thing for 16 years or whatever? And decided I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not... I'm not sure what the mechanics of this sort of, um, you know, about turn are, but it's it's made a difference. And the other thing is that I'm kind of sick of hearing myself say saying negative things about Mourinho because he's here. Like it's 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 just there's nothing new to say. All the all the you've spoken yourself redundant. <laughs> I think I have. I, I think I've I've talked myself out because I I think you know all the all the all the reservations I have with him are going to be the same next week as they were last week and the week before and the week before that. The reality at Spurs is that he is on a very large contract. He's not going anywhere. So you might as well try and see the positives from it because it's just a little bit more interesting. And so trying to identify uh, progress or things, you know, in, in more simple terms, things that are changing and evolving, it's just a little bit more interesting and compelling as a supporter. Uh so my reaction to the West Ham game wasn't the kind of the, the raging fury that we've seen elsewhere because I kind of expected it. Maybe not a 3-0, but um, I don't trust this Tottenham side to defend Leeds, whatever those Leeds may be. Um, and actually, if you look at, I mean, I, I watched the game in its entirety already knowing the results, so sort of a dispassionate perspective. But if you watch that game, especially that first half uh, again, and the kind of the opening sort of 10, 15 minutes of the second half, yeah, I mean... I don't think Tottenham were, I don't think it's quite as simple as saying Tottenham were really good for 85 minutes and then, you know, fucked it. It's not, it's not, it's just not the case at all. They had a good 20 minutes, a very indifferent hour, uh, and then a really bad 10 minutes. It's really not more complicated. I, I agree. I felt really bad for West Ham during that game because I they felt like... They didn't deserve like, to be three down. No, not think. at all. And and actually the, the, the commentary again, uh, not to just be that person that moans on about the commentary, I don't, don't mean to do that, but... I found it very dispiriting, um, particularly if I was a West Ham supporter watching that, because the commentary kept reminding me that West Ham had had a terrible game, and no, I, I, co- I just didn't correlate with what I'd seen at all. I mean, obviously they'd had a bad first few minutes, and you know some severe defensive wobbles, which uh, which resulted in three goals. But also not to take away from from uh, Spurs, those goals were excellent goals. They were difficult to defend goals, right? So it's not it's not the end of the world. It it, it, it feels like it when you get to, to three nil down. But Spurs, the, the 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 constant sort of a commentary line of Spurs was that they were in cruise control, and they weren't at all. No, <laughs> they were in cruise all. control in the sense that they were three 0 up most of the game. That's sort of cruise control. You've got a big, uh, you know, there's a big space between you and drawing or losing, right? Which obviously inevitably they managed to do. But in terms of controlling the game, having more uh, possession, looking more dominating while they were playing, making better passes, creating more chances, just looking more confident. They didn't do any of those things. And I, I, I kept watching it thinking, I'm, I'm, am I sort of falling asleep for, for moments of this? Or am I completely misunderstanding what's happening in front of my eyes? Are West Ham being done a disservice here? In some ways, I think it was worth it for them to score three goals and come back in that game just to prove uh, the weird commentary team wrong. I think um, I think what you've you've landed on there is is the privilege of having world class attacking players. Yeah, they score goals. Yeah, that score goals because you're not reliant on team performance. You're reliant on um, little combinations between those players, which give the illusion of authority within a game, or um, you know at least the idea that 
you know, Tottenham were hugely superior to West Ham in the first half. I don't think they were. Um, watching it back again, like with a caveat that um, you know, I watched it after I knew the result, but it it's it was a full sense of security, and so nothing that happened off that, especially off the first goal, went went in. You could see it. You could see it in the way that Tottenham defended. No, nothing's really changed without the ball um, in terms of the, the ability to defend their own box. I mean, Mourinho's literally placed more players in the box, but the quality of the actions of those players hasn't improved. Um, it's just the only real improvement, I'd say, two areas. Kane and Son, that combination has changed and become um, much more dynamic and effective. It's been wonderful to watch. And uh, Tangi Ndombele has uh, improved sure. immeasurably. Yeah, He's definitely. reconditioned himself. Um, I, I think beyond that, um, you know, Regulon's uh, played very well, but, you know, early days there. Beyond that, I don't see much which is, um, which is, I don't, I, I don't, there's not much cause for enthusiasm in many of the other systems at the moment. Some good results, but it's, it's not, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really good example of what happens, of narrative, isn't it? This is what the score says, so therefore this is what what my reaction must be. Like when I um when I got off the plane, like I, I caught up with the, the the WhatsApp conversation between you and Alex, and um one of Alex's comments was, "Well, it's been a bit boring apart from the six goals," and yeah. I thought that was kind of Alex being Alex with his you know the the way yeah, he looks true. games. But then I watched the game back, and he was right, and I think that's kind of indicative of you know the illusion of goal scoring and uh you know uh, individual players having an influence versus you know an actual you know properly performing football team well alex i would i would say uh, i'd like to talk about west ham a little bit um who as I, as i said before i thought actually weren't bad during the game a couple of things that i noticed were uh the link up play between fornells and antonio was actually uh, very delicate at times and quite nice, particularly in the first half, and then obviously improving into the second. Uh, also, Suchek is big, isn't he? Isn't he big? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's there's a couple of points just very quickly to throw back to Larice, which I think is interesting. Last season, um, his post shot expected goals plus or minus. Do we know what that is? Shall I explain what that is? That's the number of uh, goals that he should or shouldn't. It's like goalkeeper XG, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. So he, he was second best in the Premier League last season uh, by volume and uh, best by per 90. Which means he saved more than he should have done. He saved 7.3 goals more than he should have done based on the post-shot XG. Yeah, Which either um, suggests he was lucky or he's a good goalkeeper. Correct. Whereas okay. this season, he is the second lowest. Oh, with, so he was lucky. Minus two point three. <laughs> so maybe he was lucky. Maybe he's not being protected as well. But it's it's worth saying that he, you know, that it. The point I would make is that it's entirely possible that actually Spurs' defensive issues last season were slightly ameliorated by an overperformance by a goalkeeper, and things could have been significantly worse mm, had he performed at average. Um, and in terms of that game, yeah, I mean, Seb's absolutely right. Like. Um, Although uh, Spurs created slightly more chances, West Ham outshot them. West Ham had more accurate passes in the opposition half. West Ham had more accurate crosses. Like th this was an even game, and I think in terms of of how the end result came about, yes, obviously, if you have a a massive swing in one direction followed by a massive swing in the other, it, it it's it's hard to read off that. But but actually, during the course of the game. I think Seb's spot on, you know, Spurs were not by any stretch of the imagination 
dominant, and a lot of that was to do with with how West Ham played. I think Antonio's a really interesting player. You know, he's he's a converted right wing back effectively. Yeah. Um, who has also played in wide attacking positions and kind of been recast as a a centre forward, largely I think on the basis of the fact that he is exceptionally good in the air. Um, and you know, going back a number of seasons, he's he was the Premier League's highest scorer off headers, quite consistently. Not um, this season. No, but it's it's Old a big DCL's in of, town, eh? <clears throat> yes. Um, it's a big vote of, of faith in him because obviously, you know, West Ham's sort of marquee signing um, in, in the last window was um, Sebastian Haller coming off a fantastic season with Eintracht Frankfurt as a a pretty complete all-round modern forward, but one who was, you know, supposed to be aerially dominant. And the fact that he just hasn't worked out at West Ham so far and Antonio's got that spot is, is a, a real vote of confidence in him. But he... I think probably because he started life elsewhere on the pitch, his link-up play is very good. You know, he's he's an astute mover with the ball, and he drags defenders with him because of this aerial threat, and that allows West Ham's other attacking players to push forwards into space. Um, I thought Yarmolenko was good when he came on as well. Um, Cresswell is, is a danger, both from open play but also from set-piece delivery. Uh, and Suchek is is a fantastic signing. I mean, I think I think what's interesting as well with that West Ham midfield is that Declan Rice is a different player for West Ham uh, than than he is for England, and that there, there are various reasons for that. I'm sure that are, are not just you know in terms of who he's playing with, um, the the role and responsibility that he has. But at, at West Ham, he's able to carry the ball forwards a little bit more because I think Suchek is a genuine box-to-box midfielder who can cover behind Rice and allow Rice to progress the ball a bit better, um, which he doesn't really have at England. You know, for England, his role is supposed to be much more, you know, screening and, and, and focused on not really moving. So... I think the the balance of West Ham is is looking pretty good at the moment. I like it anyway. Happy for them. Also, I always like uh, Aaron Cresswell is my new Jesse Lingard in the sense that I go, how old is he? Sorry, I thought isn't Aaron Cresswell supposed to be forever young? That forever young sort of exciting, establishing West Ham left back, and now he's thirty one in December. <laughs> <coughs> I thought he was, I thought he was like twenty five. And he was going to get his move to a bigger club. What what I will say about West Ham is they've got Manchester City this weekend. Just hold the phone a little bit until. Um, hey, no one's picking know. up the phone, Seb. We're holding the phone. I'm hold just... the phone, indeed. Well, don't let it, no. What, hold what on. Does no, hold actually, the phone mean? don't. It means no, no, let's, no. Stop. Let's just pause on them because uh, historically. We're not um, saying anything definitive. We're just saying that West Ham have been better so far. Stop trying to spoil the West Ham joy by I thinking, oh, difficult things are coming up in the future. Therefore, it's... we shouldn't be excited about nice things that have happened in the past. What about this? I, it's my it's my wedding day, mother. Yes, it is, son. But don't be excited because one day you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you see, a, a Stoic or... would say that the realisation of that as a kind of logical outcome just is stop. a thing that... No, no. We're going to I mean, leave we West are. Ham there. We're leaving West Ham where they're happy because they came back and beat Spurs. Then basically beat Spurs. They didn't beat Spurs. They drew three three. It was, it was a, a tremendous game victory. of football. It was a moral victory, and actually 
they did, it was a, certainly a moral victory over the commentary team. We're leaving it there. Uh, after the break, we'll come back and talk about no, Everton no, 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 and Liverpool. Break. Everton and Liverpool. Everton and Liverpool. <laughs> okay, Everton and Liverpool. What is the talking point here? Alex's plan says the talking point here is key men. And that's yes. the only intro I'm giving you, Alex. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, okay. Well, obviously, there's been significant brouhaha over the Virgil van Dyke injury, um, and they are currently missing Allison as well. And I suppose what's interesting is the degree to which Liverpool were a good team but a work in progress uh, until those two signings happened, van Dyke first, Allison second. Uh, the extent to which you know van Dyke being out arguably for the rest of the season, probably. Um, and Alison, I don't know, has probably got another couple of months left. Um, to what extent that hurts them and, and how much, you know, that it's it's possible to work out... Obviously, Liverpool's front three are really, really good. Um, but you do know what you're getting with them. It's just very hard to stop that because they're such technically excellent players. But the weakness at the back that was solved by those two very expensive but very astute acquisitions. Um, Liverpool losing them, is is that effectively the title over? I know that's quite a kind of um, narrative. But the, th- but the thing is that you're right, because when but... they bought them in, that was the title one. I mean, that, that's kind of the point you're making, isn't it? Like It, it yeah. seemed as simple as that from a, a A to B, so why wouldn't it be from B to A? I mean, I I think that the caveat I'd add is that, that you know, Fabinho has played as a centre-back and, and excelled in a game, uh, I can't remember who it was against, but he was really good. Was it He Everton? was good in that game. It was, I think it was uh, Arsenal, wasn't it? Yes, sorry, Arsenal, yes. Not Everton, that was who they played at the weekend. And obviously they've now got Thiago, who's back and, and recovered, who can play, albeit as a much less physical six, um, but brings that kind of intelligence and screening. So there may be... A, a case to say that Liverpool can adapt. I still think Adrian obviously is a significant downgrade on on Allison. Um, not just because Allison's one of the world's best goalkeepers, but because Liverpool's approach of having this very high line, which again Van Dijk, um, you know, facilitates. And I do think Fabinho is is reasonable cover in that sense. But but Adrian is not the same as Allison in terms of sweeping up behind that back line and his ability to play through the first line of the press. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, the, the the title may have been decided, although it's also hard to say who's significantly yeah, I mean, better. Decided it's, to go to who? Because uh, I think Man City have had a pretty ropey start as well, haven't they? Yeah, it's, I mean, will West it Ham. be Everton? <laughs> yeah, West Ham. West Ham or um, Brighton, one of the two. Everton, maybe, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It, it It's just, it's interesting to see you know, obviously the the reaction to the Van Dyke injury has been, as as we've sort of discussed earlier, um, has verged from the ridiculous to the obscene. But I think I think it's indicative of just how important he is and, and how much Liverpool fans realise that, you know, that the title was built on his ability to do certain things. Yeah. And there is a real paucity of genuinely top class defenders. I think Carragher said this during the Spurs game actually, um, when he was talking about how bad Davison Sanchez have been. But it, it just it seems like 
you know the two key positions in modern football are, are centre back and defensive midfielder, and there just aren't that many that are really really good. And Liverpool are going to have to compensate for the absence of one by dropping arguably one of the world's best DMs back into centre back, probably, um, and that's going to really hurt them. Well, I would say that my my perception on this slightly changed. Uh, we, we were chatting about it last night because the outpouring uh, of of I suppose support and grief. sometimes kind of <laughs> yeah, gr- I mean verging on grief over Virgil Van Dijk um, was enough to pause for thought. Um, he's twenty nine years old, isn't he? I didn't realise that. I thought he was a little younger. I thought he was closer to twenty twenty seven. Do you just um, think all professional athletes are like three or four years younger than they I actually are? I think that's what it is, yeah. Uh, but anyway, as I thought you're he was... getting older. <laughs> I thought he was three or four years passing. younger. Yeah. We're all going to die. Uh, the idea that Virgil van Dijk is younger than me anyway just seems ridiculous because people, I feel like older people should just get bigger and taller as they get older. So 90-year-olds should be, you know, basically giants. Uh, but... Uh, Virgil van Dijk is 29 years old. He's going to be out for probably the whole season, right? I mean, maybe not, but possibly as long as the entire season. Um, it's also an injury which is difficult for for players to recover from. It's also an injury which he's he's had before. Am I right in saying that, or has he's had he's had a significant layoff before, hasn't he, Seb? He's certainly um, he's certainly. I'm looking at his career statistics. I don't know anything about his injury history. Looking right. at his injury statistics, he's had a few seasons where he's missed a couple of games. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. I think I'm I don't I don't think he's had a cruciate ligament injury before. I'm not sure if it was exactly the same one, but I thought he'd had a, I thought he'd had some kind of lengthy layoff. You keep talking, and I shall look it up in the background. Yeah. It anyway, will, kind, it of, will kind take of irrelevant. Him into the 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 period at which athletes pass their peak, though. Well, this is this is kind of what I'm saying, and also, uh, it is because of what you described, Alex, that the nature of Liverpool's title win, the nature of Liverpool's team improvement uh, after bringing in Allison and Van Dijk, and also Van Dijk just being this kind of you know towering leadership figure mm. yeah he's he's a he's a genuine talisman for them he, he, he's genuinely like i think you know it's difficult it's a difficult conversation often who is the best player in this position in the world you've got messi and ronaldo there's an argument about that you've got players in all sorts of other positions there's always an argument with virgil van dyke it really doesn't feel like there's an argument it really feels like virgil van dyke is the best center back in the world at 29 to miss a season just after you've won the Premier League with Liverpool and the Champions League the season before. It feels like not just missing a season, it feels like missing what could have been or maybe you had the opportunity to be the best season of your of your life or another at the very, very top of the game before some of the physical d- deterioration starts to come in just as a result naturally of, well, I think, of the ageing process. I think that's right. And I, I think it's worth saying that it's not just his defensive attributes that, that mark him out as being if not the best in the sort of top three. His distribution is exceptional and is a huge part of how Liverpool play. Um, I think what's also interesting is to, to go back to the sense of narrative. There was there was so much conversation around that Liverpool title win about how it was, and, and also the Champions League win the season before, about how it was because they'd brought Van Dijk in. And you just wonder to yeah. what degree, um, not even fans, but but possibly even members of the squad who had, you know, that squad is otherwise not significantly changed. Uh, I mean, Trent Alexander-Arnold was coming through and was well established in the Champions League season, but had basically come through the season previously. Um, but there haven't been many significant additions otherwise. And that's a squad that that always had high levels of quality going forwards, but 
but they knew that they had a weakness at centre back, um, and they knew that Van Dyke coming in had solved that. And the degree to which they'll then be thinking internally, like you know, <laughs> this is a huge problem. I mean, you know, Matip is good, but he's injury prone. Gomez has positional difficulties. Um, and then you're into, you know, a couple of quite young players, you know, none of whom have been massively impressive, or Fabinho. I would so, pick up on that point as well and say that, it, it obviously, I think I think the way that the narrative will be written around last season, uh, it, it was Klopp's trophy, right? It's Liverpool, Liverpool's Premier League, but it's Klopp's trophy. The second person whose trophy it is, is Virgil van Dijk. And this is in a team with Mo Salah, right? with yeah. Sadio Mane, but with Roberto Firmino. But that's because those guys had been there already. You know, the, but it, also, it, I think they'd won the season before. The, I feel like the Champions League victory, the, the the year prior was 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 you know was Mo Salah's year. The following year was much more about team play, uh, and Virgil van Dijk just became the emblem emblem for that. But that's a very hard thing to do in a team with that many superstars. Um, and so, so I, I, what I'm saying is, I suppose it's not just an ordinary injury. I do obviously, you know, surprise, surprise, social media goes, uh, you know, over the top sometimes. That's not news to anybody, right? But there's an outpouring of emotion for a reason because this is different than an ordinary injury. And I don't mean that to denigrate other players who, who perhaps aren't quite as good as Virgil van Dijk or, you know, not as pivotal points in their career. Yeah. But losing Virgil van Dijk for a season is a sad thing, uh, whoever you support, I think. That's, that's uh, definitely it's, it's very sad I, I, for him. I think the circumstances of the injury play into that as well. Yes. Um, the fact that it was in a Merseyside derby, the fact that it was it, it was a really... I, d- I don't believe there was any... In, well, do I believe there was intent? Who knows? You can't read people's minds. But it was a, a stupidly rash challenge from Pickford. Hang, hang, can, I, can I chip in there? I mean, I... <laughs> I mean, to me, it just looks like Jordan Pickford's clumsiness. He did almost exactly the same thing to Deli Alley last season, uh, season before maybe. He is just a bit sort of, I mean, when he comes out in that kind of position, his limbs go everywhere. He's yeah. Um, I, he's I a don't. Bit I don't callous. think. I don't think that Pickford intended to hurt him. Absolutely, I don't. But I do think, yes, Pickford is a clumsy goalkeeper and his decision making is poor. But I also do think that he is an unduly aggressive goalkeeper in the way that he comes out for stuff. And I think that that's where the element of recklessness comes in, that it, it's think... not just clumsiness. Like he, he, he puts himself into those positions with a degree of frequency that I, I think is not just clumsiness. That I agree with. I mean, it's interesting if you trace that back, I think, um, I think the root for that is probably his lack of size. I mean, he's he's not small, but compared to someone like uh, Thibaut Courtois, for instance, he is on the shorter side. I mean, in, in terms of build, if you if you stand in front of him in a in a mix zone or whatever, you're struck by he's not that imposing. And so I think the natural compensation for that for, the, for a goalkeeper is to be quite aggressive. If you watch him, for instance, uh, if you watch him try and punch a, a cross out of his six yard box, um, the way he attacks the ball is, um, as Alex says, it's, it's full of aggression. And I think this is kind of a manifestation of that general attitude. Like you're, you're trying to make up for what you don't have by being a little bit more physically imposing with your with your sort of, um, you know, technical behaviours. And it just seemed to be a, a consequence of that. I mean, I, I, I've I've seen some really stupid things written about this and some some 
I mean, the, the thing about, oh, you know, Pickford should be banned for as long as it takes Virgil van Dijk to... How can you credibly say something like that if, if you've ever spent any time around the game? Like, you've got some really serious people saying things like that. It's it's embarrassing. That was uh, Julien Laurence, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I like I like him, but that I, I think he'd probably take that one back if he had the chance. I think, I think that's an emotional reaction to something, and maybe he recorded it too soon after the derby. Um, we all have our bad moments. We've all said stupid stuff, but... You cannot, like, I don't think that's particularly helpful when something like this happens. Um, there was also an interesting thing I saw on Twitter, which is an unusual statement, granted, um, <laughs> about uh, contrasting... Is that the enjoyment or the Twitter bit? Is that the... <laughs> Both. Um, that uh, Contrasting the reaction to this injury with um, a number of tackles that actually it was Arsenal players... Um, had had suffered the Eduardo leg break, the Ramsey leg break, and another tackle on Ramsey that were much less um, critical of of the player, even though the resulting injuries were worse, and arguably the challenges were worse as well. Um, certainly with the uh, the the Ramsey leg break, um, but it, it seems like that the, the reaction is sort of stoking itself. Uh, and again, I think this is a function of social media. This is not to say that the injury isn't really unfortunate and it's very sad for Virgil van Dijk and I can understand that it's sad for Liverpool fans. But it does seem like we now exist in a in a kind of response-orientated um, It's the platform, what Yeah, no, it, it's it, just, it is. It's like the opportunity because I've done this before, not on Twitter, but like I, I've watched games of football uh, and felt like personally slighted by something that a team, an opposition team player has done. And and then I've genuinely held that anger in me for 48 hours until I watch it back a, a six months later and realise that, oh, that was just it was an accident, wasn't it? Or it was a good goal or, you know, not even bad tackles. Just the way that a team, opposition team celebrates a goal is, is as a smug slight on me that but they it, are somehow a- telling me that I'm an idiot and that they're way better, <laughs> even though they're not. Like it's just stupid, and now there's a thing on your phone that means you can tell the entire world about your immediate irrational response to something, which is what we all have to remember. Is like is this is kind of what I was, you know, full circle, which is good because we do have to end the episode. Uh, but um, you know, people are, uh, pe- football makes people irrational, which is great because that's the only point. So like, do it, but just 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 be care- either be careful about doing it on the internet or when you see it on the internet uh, not you Alex just the listener when you see it on the internet just uh, be compassionate because people are thick you know everyone's thick that's how people work <laughs> everybody is thick and everyone does thick things all the time and uh, ultimately as mother said to me it, it doesn't matter you're gonna die anyway that's the end of the episode now uh thanks so much for listening and downloading hopefully you'll spend your remaining years with us and keep downloading every tuesday and thursday and of course we release on the tfo football youtube channel weekdays as well so hopefully you can uh, enjoy enjoy us there also um and of course visit theathletic.com forward slash tfo uh, to to receive, I forgot to say how much it was before. At the moment, I believe it's one pound a month as part of an introductory offer. So please go and do that. Uh, Seb, thank you. Thank you very much, Joe. Alex, thank you. Cheers, Joe. Au revoir. <laughs>